the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. I'm Chloe McCulloch and this morning I'm here talking to Professor Davy McCracken. Davy, it would be great if you could introduce yourself and say a little bit about what your role is. Yeah, so I'm an agricultural ecologist, which means I look at farming and wildlife interactions. Uh, I've been doing that for over 30 years, 25 years of that with um, Scotland Rural College um, in its various guises. Uh, basically means I've been looking at farming and wildlife interactions, um, how farming benefits um, um, wildlife in the wider environment, uh, and been using that sort of understanding for at least 25 years to try and help understand how common agricultural policy and particularly agri-environment could be actually changed, adapted to actually uh, ensure that land use change, land management practices benefit wildlife and the environment. Uh, Within SRUC, I wear a number of different hats. I head up what's called our Hill and Mountain Research Centre. So we've got a 2,200 hectare research and demonstration farm near Crean Larrack in the Highlands. Um, and for the last, since last year, since January 19, uh, I've also um, headed up a, a, I call a Department of Integrated Land Management because I'm sure as we go through the present, uh, the, the interview, uh, you'll see why I think that uh, there is a need for a wide range of other outputs to be coming from farming and farmland, not just the agricultural products. Okay. And just to put a little bit of context onto Davy with his hill farmer hat on, what what do we have up at Crean Larrick? So, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, at Kirkton we've got 2,200 hectare research and demonstration farm. We were 50 years old in November 2019. We were originally um, established to look at agricultural challenges in that sort of environment. We're still doing that, so we've got 1,500 sheep and we've got a small herd of 25, 26 um, um, cows on that, but also for the last 25 years of those 50 years, we've been looking at uh, the environmental uh, impacts and maintenance of uh, a wide range of sort of biodiversity and other environmental sort of outcomes uh, on that type of farming environment. Once you get to the mountains of Scotland, like mountains elsewhere across the UK, Europe, the world, you can't really separate farming and the environment um, out at all. And that has particular relevance now because as we're thinking about Brexit in particular, um, we are starting to to think about how policy might shift in the future and there are noises about um, how future policy in terms of how farmers are supported could be different to, to, to what we have now. There feels like there's a bit of a conflict in the objective sometimes between um, farmers and government. So a farmer might say that producing as much beef or milk or lamb as possible is a public good, that is them doing their bit. What would be your take on public goods? Well, p- public good um, refers to the type of outputs that are, can arise from any sort of land management, in this case sort of farming, um, that um, there, there, there's not a, a, an obvious uh, real financial incentive market there for. Uh, and so public goods are things like um, water quality, biodiversity, air quality, etc. Farming products, important though they are, or agricultural products, important though they are from farming, they're not classed as a public good as such because there is is a financial market, there's an economic market there for them. Aspects of the sort of the public good discussion debate uh, do highlight that, but nevertheless, many of those public goods that we are talking about can only be produced if we have got active farming happening in different parts of Scotland. And the public goods, they are, they are driven by domestic policy or they are driven by European policy. The WTO doesn't have a great deal of interest in these public goods, is that right? As far as um, um, the World Trade Organisation is concerned, uh, or agreements are concerned, then the vast majority of that was put in place. Most recently, the Uruguay round, which is the, the, the round that's currently the main area of, of focus, that was put in place in the mid-90s. Um, and that was put in place well before we were concerned about, um, in a major way, about uh, climate change, um, biodiversity loss, diffuse pollution, water quality. And so all of these, what would be now public goods, weren't even on the table when WTO was, was, was put uh, uh, together. So WTO, WTO currently has no major uh, input on the public good sort of story, although 
there has to be a way of making sure that environmental benefits can be achieved while respecting WTO uh, legislation. It's more the yes, it's European policy and and and, um, and domestic policy that is driving an increased focus on public goods and what type of public goods can arrive from farmland, but it's actually the imperative that we actually are in a biodiversity crisis. We are in a climate emergency. We've been in both of those for as long as I've, I've got a 30-year career. So we've been in both of those. Um, we've seen biodiversity declines. We've seen climate actually change uh, during that sort of period. But there's a recognition now uh, that uh, more needs to be done, particularly to, to mitigate um, um, climate change, uh, particularly to see how you can use natural solutions to actually help mitigate climate change and then get biodiversity benefits out of that. Policy is helping focus attention, but it's really the urgent need to actually change things on the ground that's the, that's the real driver of why public goods have come to the fore. And where do you think policy is going to go in the medium, short to medium term? Oh, well, that's the $64 million question for, for anybody. And um, entering into the Brexit transition period, there's still a lot to be sort of sorted out in the next year um, before even any of that's going to be clear. Uh, all I can say at the minute is the importance of uh, the environment, wider public goods, has been long recognised across the UK and the devolved um, nations, uh, agricultural and environmental policies. That's clear. Uh, what we have at the minute is the likelihood that uh, in England we will see uh, a greater push uh, on only rewarding farmers ultimately for the delivery of public goods and moving away from a, a basic payment. Uh, here in Scotland uh, we have a, a commitment um, from um, Cabinet Secretary Fergus Ewing uh, uh, to say that uh, uh, until 2024 uh, agricultural support policy within Scotland will stay much the same as it actually is. And there's a whole host um, of um, 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 meetings, workshops, committees, panels, uh, uh, all working at the moment to try and work to try and think through uh, what might be the best uh, policy to introduce post twenty twenty four, and just as importantly, what then might be the best things to test, trial, see how well it may or may not work between now and 2024. And that's a very narrow window um, to actually work in and to try and get things most appropriate for going forward. And presumably it's not just farmers who are having this challenge. Presumably climate policy will have an impact all across the UK economy. It's not just... Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the, the major um, sea change, if you, if you excuse the pun, that we've seen in the last six months is the fact that uh, the declaration of the climate emergency at a global European, UK and, and, and Scottish level, that has meant that uh, we've had climate policies um, and aspirations in Scotland for the last 10 years plus. But what it's meaning is that climate and what uh, can be done to address climate issues uh, is becoming across the board policy or, or, or sorry, all sectors, whether it's transport, infrastructure, etc., 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 not just land management, are having to actually take climate uh, needs into account uh, and actually seek to actually uh, ensure that their policies are not driving um, against that um, urgent need to actually um, 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 at least try and help uh, globally sort of hold climate or stop uh, warming getting any worse. So the expression public goods <coughs> is one that's been around for a long time, but an expression that people have perhaps heard more recently would be natural capital. Yep, and you know both of those are 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 are, are interlinked. Uh, as as you say, public goods. We've been talking about public goods for a, for a long time. So public goods are are basically these benefits that arise from any sort of land management practice uh, that in more of benefit to wider society rather than the individual who is managing that piece of land. So that's things like what we call carbon sequestration, locking up carbon in trees or in uh, restored peatlands. It's um, helping to mitigate floods, lower down a catchment. It's helping to improve water quality and it's helping to maintain or enhance biodiversity. Those are all things that we, we refer to as public goods because wider society benefits from them, but we have to rely on different um, land managers in different parts of, in our case, Scotland, to actually help deliver those. Natural capital as a, as a, as, as a focus has come about um, from, that from, from that shift uh, or, or, or thinking more about the wider public goods that arise from any land management. 
natural capital is just an account. It comes from an accounting term. It's like an, it's like an economic accountant sort of approach. If these public goods are important to wider society, how much of them do we actually have in practice? How have they been changing over um, in recent decades? Um, how much of them do we need going forward? Uh, and so natural capital is just about getting a, a, a assessing the stock of what we currently have in terms of air, soil, water, uh, those type of natural capital type elements. Uh, and uh, then saying, uh, having an understanding of that, of what the stock currently is, it's just like your bank account, it then um, gives you some indication as to what you can afford to do in the future and what might be the trade-offs if you actually choose to not invest in peatland restoration, what, what does that mean for carbon sequestration, natural capital, um, and if you are, are allowing something else to happen in those peatlands, uh, what is then the, 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 the added benefits, ben disbenefits and trade-offs associated with those. So it's just like assessing how much of what we have currently and looking ahead, how much do we need in the future? And then what does that mean for both land management and policy decision making um, and to actually help facilitate a movement in one direction or the other? And that's quite a, <coughs> an interesting shift from the traditional, that idea that we can value you know, the, 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 the benefits of a farm in terms of flood defences or, or any of these other things. Is that is that fair to say that that's a bit of a shift? It is a bit of a shift. Um, uh, well, it's a, it's a bit of a shift if you think of it in terms of the sort of the valuation, um, um, in terms of putting a putting a, a, a pounds and pence value on it. If you step back, if you take one step back and just think of it as outcomes from uh, a, a farm or, or any one piece of land, then it's just the same as an agricultural product, you know, uh, amount of beef, sheep, milk, crops, whatever, as a product, these um, and public goods and associated natural capital are just another outcome of what's there on the farm and, and the potential for what the farm can produce. The big shift, as you, say, as you rightly say, is how do you then put a value on that? Um, and, and, and there's two issues associated with that. How do you put a value on it means how do you actually measure it in the first place? So historically, we were supported... Um, um, in Scotland across the, and across the rest of the EU, the payments that went to farmers were production orientated, so it was number of animals, um, hectares of crops grown. We've moved towards a, a more largely area-based support system, but still, you know, there's an area you can see something relatively easy in order to sort of quantify. If you've got that area of that type of region land, this is the payment you actually get. Bit more difficult to actually quantify the delivery of a public good. How much carbon sequestration are you really sequestering? How much flood prevention are you really are you really contributing to on your piece of land? And um, the metric side of things, being able to quantify that, is highly important going forward. It would be important going forward anyway, in order to try and make sure that the payment rate was 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 appropriate. It's even more important post Brexit, because currently. Payments to um, land managers from, from agriculture and environmental support, they're what's called ring-fenced. That payment, uh, that budget is created under the Common Agricultural Policy and UK Domestic Policy, has to be used for that purpose. If it's not used, it goes back back, back, to, back to the primary source. Post-Brexit, and, and certainly post-December 2020, once we have developed our own UK and, and Scottish um, domestic um, um, support policies, though the budget for those will be in the same pot as other public funding budgets. Uh, and so there needs to be a justification as to why should um, um, this range um, of funding be used to support, to reward um, those number of farmers uh, in order to justify the continued use of that money. And, and do you think there's a risk that farmers are overestimating the value of food security? That, that would be what they think they currently deliver. Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, if the question was, do I think that farmers are currently overvaluing their um, um, role in, um, in, in, in Scottish and UK society uh, and that there is a, a, a continuing need for their role to be rewarded, protected, etc. going forward, then unfortunately the answer has to be yes. Uh, in reality, uh, uh, when you get into the, uh, the non-ring-fenced public funding sort of perspective, then um, farming and food security um, at a UK level, at least, 
is very, very much lower down the order of priority. And it will be interesting to see how in this transition period and in this negotiating period where how much um, um, of a, 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 a leverage um, and rewarding maintaining funding towards agriculture at a UK level may actually uh, pan out in reality. In Scotland, it is different in the devolved in the devolved nation. In Scotland and and, and particularly and, and Wales, very similar in terms of the the poor productive productive land that we actually have. Agriculture and farming across Scotland as a whole is recognised as important, not just um, as a as an agricultural production perspective, but it's also re- highly recognised as being highly important from a social cultural perspective as well. So we do have in Scotland currently. Uh, a greater recognition at a policy level that agriculture has a role to play. I'm not necessarily saying that that important role purely from an agricultural production perspective will continue into the future. Um, I created a Department of Integrated Land Management because I think farmers, like other land managers, have a very important role to play in delivering both agricultural products and wider um, public goods. Uh, and it will be that delivery of wider public goods uh, that I am um, convinced will be the primary reason d'etre rationale for why we should be supporting land managers and farmers in particular um, into the future, even even here in Scotland. And, and how is that similar or different to what they're proposing in England? In England, they have suggested that they will strip out any basic support to um, farmers altogether. So, pillar one of the common agricultural, what's currently pillar one of the agricultural policy, uh, the basic payment element. Uh, uh, England, uh, they haven't given any indication as yet over the timescale within which they've do it. They will do it, but they've said they will gradually sort of reduce that amount of funding going to farmers and land managers for physically existing. Um, and um, move that more into uh, a public funding for public good pot, uh, which says we were we're we're actually supporting um, them for the, uh, the the those public goods that they're actually providing. Um, it's not that much different here in Scotland in terms of a, a direction of travel, but here in Scotland, the poor productivity that I've mentioned, the, the way geographical remoteness spread, there is a a, a, a rationale. Um, potentially for saying that there is still a need for some level of uh, not a basic payment, maybe a disadvantage payment or or something like that, but it is a, it is a payment that's not connected to any um, uh, tangible outcome in terms of product, whether that product's agricultural or or environmental. It's that well, this will actually help recognise that you're in a very remote, disadvantaged area. I think the vast majority of then other um, rewards, payments, support mechanisms that come on top of that will have to um, reflect a wider range um, um, of the outcomes, not just the farming outcomes that farm that, that those farms can actually produce. And this is quite a shift from the traditional model of being paid per head of stock that you've got or per acre or some of these things which are all very even the even the environmental measures that we have currently are all very easy to quantify somebody can go out with a gps backpack and go for a walk and they can confirm that there is a water margin or there is a a thing of a particular width or length there'll be new challenges in how you assess these public goods or natural capital. Are, are there examples of this sort of model being used elsewhere that we can draw on or are we starting afresh? No, we're not starting completely afresh. Um, for the last um, um, five to eight years elsewhere in Europe, um, from an agri-environment perspective, you're right to say it is easy to, if a farmer undertakes to uh, develop water margins on their site or, or weeder scrapes or un- undertake some sort of grazing plan um, to benefit wildlife and biodiversity. Currently, uh, our agri-environment, very what's called prescription-driven, uh, indicates that you will undertake to put the fences up and, and manage this land in, in, a, in a particular way. And that is the primary focus that is then um, directed to how um, Scottish Government and ARPID will actually assess whether um, uh, what, what has been asked for is being delivered. But that doesn't really pay any attention whatsoever to is doing that actually resulting in the desired outcome or not? And when we enter into a period where not only, as I've said, will 
agricultural and agri-environment payments be not ring-fenced, but part of the wider budget, that budget is likely to shrink. So when you have a shrinking budget, policymakers and wider society want to ensure that that money is being used wisely um, and cost-effectively, and you are getting the outcome that's actually desired. So there's much more of a shift, particularly in the agri-environment sphere. There's been a shift to thinking about how can you actually um, um, recognise and reward um, farmers and other land managers for the outcomes that they're actually delivering and putting more of the funding element towards the out the delivery of the outcome rather than only the delivery of what might be thought to deliver that outcome. So in the Republic of Ireland and elsewhere in Europe, there's been uh, trials of outcome-based uh, schemes going um, for at least the last five or six years. And um, here in Scotland, uh, in 2019, uh, there were um, at least four outcome-based agri-environment, results-based agri-environment um, trial projects um, put in place, um, one in Strathspey, two in the West Highlands, and one in, I think it's East Lothian, I'm not that familiar with that, the Arable-oriented one, where they're actually trialling in the first instance what type of um, approach would be relevant to put in place in each of those areas uh, with regard to the outcomes that are, are actually desired. And, and this is what they call PBR or payment by results? Pay, payment by results, yes. There's, there's a wide variety of phrases being used for that, but it basically puts more of a focus on what is the outcome that's desired as opposed to, and, and doesn't actually then constrain or hinder the, the land manager, the farmer, uh, doesn't dictate to them, thou shalt do this, this and this on the basis that's going to produce that. They have more flexibility themselves to decide on the knowledge of their own farm, their own field or where, whatever the focus is, they can decide how they think is best placed to actually deliver that. But with, but with um, 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 uh, advice, guidance, support, which is delivered um, certainly elsewhere in Europe, that facilitation support, advice and guidance is delivered as part of the, the overall pay-by-results, pay-by-outcome-based scheme. Yeah, because that, that shifts a certain amount of risk onto the farmer at the moment if it's a prescriptive um, system and um, there's a, a global view that this sort of activity on this sort of land yeah. in this part of the country will have a, a particular result and the farmer does it to the best of their ability and it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it, it doesn't work, but presumably these payment-by-results-driven schemes are a bit higher risk for farmers or is there a way to, to kind of... Well, uh, well um, uh, potentially yes, but actually, you know, I've, I've been involved um, um, in the margins of uh, uh, the discussions, the, uh, the application of these sort of payment by result, pay by outcome type and schemes, models, trials for at least 15 years. Uh, and that question is the first question that, that comes up, what is the degree of risk? The important thing to, to recognise is that um, when, when someone is talking about pay-by-results or pay-by-outcome, uh, it's actually the, the, the key thing is focusing on what that outcome actually is um, and thinking what the, the risk of the delivery of that actually is. So, for example, the, uh, the one up in the Cairngorms trial project at the moment is primarily focused on um, um, wading birds like lapwing, curlew, etc., so you might think that the outcome from a farm perspective of, of or joining that scheme would be to increase their lap wing or curlew by X percent or by X number. That would be highly risky for the, for the farmer, but the schemes recognise that. They recognise that if the only outcome that's, that's looked at from that type of scheme is the number of things with wings that can be there or not under their own sort of volition and might be impacted by things happening elsewhere in the UK uh, or, or, or elsewhere around that farm. And are quite a long-term... Yes. Quite a long-term yeah. thing so, as well. So, so, so these outcome results, um, why a lot of thinking has to go into their design is to ensure that the outcome that's focused is not so much on um, increasing birds by X amount, but what is it that what is the outcome in terms of how should that piece of area of the farmland actually look to stand a higher chance, a higher likelihood of being much better for those sort of in this case birds, uh, and so the outcome that would be desired there would be these type of birds, lapwing like this amount of um, wetland next to this amount of um, 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 open habitat, uh, and you haven't got that currently, the outcome we're looking for is for you to put that in place at a sufficient scale on your farm. So that's the focus for most of these outcome schemes, and 
Many of them, again, we don't know what model is going to be followed in Scotland, but what could be in Scotland, uh, what, what has been done elsewhere, for the, the really desired outcome, increase the number of birds that way, that might be a, a top-up payment if that is achieved, but it's not the only um, metric that's actually used to decide how much funding then goes to the farmer for that. So essentially the outcome is potentially about the creation of suitable habitat without being as prescriptive yes. about how you have to create yeah. that yeah. habitat. So that yeah. does give farmers it's, more flexibility. Yeah. Suitable habitat, and by suitable it's the, the right type or mixture of habitat and, and, and the condition of that habitat, which is the, which is the crucial thing. It's easy perhaps to see where this approach and particularly where the natural capital would be on, say, a big hill farm. Take Cree and Larrick, there'll be a whole variety of different habitats and it's and it's big. Yeah. Um, what about smaller, perhaps relatively intensive farms, you know, the, the, the 100 acre dairy farm that perhaps doesn't have as much there to start with? How do these sorts of systems make sure that they are still rewarded for what they do, even though the baseline's different? Well, you're correct. Baseline would ever be very different, not just from from low ground to um, 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 upland farming. It will even differ from farm to farm. Um, but across all types of farming in Scotland um, and certainly elsewhere in the UK, uh, you know, one key fundamental is soil. You know, so managing soil um, um, more appropriately, uh, getting a greater organic matter into the soil uh, is a public good uh, in terms of it's actually helping to actually maintain um, and, and, and enhance sort of carbon storage, uh, um, and will actually help with actual water retention in that soil, etc, etc, etc. You know, managing in any type of farming system, a fundamental is managing your soils in a better way uh, is not only good, um, from wider society's perspective, it's actually good for the farm itself. And that's where there, there does need to be a, a wider recognition and an understanding, because um, I speak to a, a lot of different farmers um, and public goods, <coughs> and there is this uh, uh, interpretation that managing for public goods means that the benefit happens elsewhere off the farm. For the vast majority of public good management on an individual farm, what you're then doing on that farm, yes, it has benefits downstream or, or to a wider society, but the vast majority of them will also have benefits at that individual farm level. Managing soil is one key genetic cross-cutting, no matter what type of farming system you're on, that is, that is key. The other benefits to, the, to, a, to a farm will depend on what other management practices are put in. Planting more trees, big public good there in terms of carbon sequestration. You choose to put those trees in the most appropriate places in your farm, you're going to get shelter shelter effects um, um, in the longer term out of that, particularly in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a period of marked climate change. There's a whole host of ways that managing for public goods can actually have benefits at the farm level that means that those farms are likely to be much more sustainable into the future from an agricultural production perspective as much as a public good perspective. And if we can ever move properly to a, a system whereby, as well as having a, a private market for your agricultural product, then there's a public good reward system for the type of um, uh, public goods that you're actually delivering, that then actually spreads um, the, the income stream coming onto a farm makes those farms more resilient to change going forward. Upland farms like, like, like Curtin, um, where we have um, um, cattle and sheep, or sheep, primarily sheep but with some cattle, you know, having most of our income source wrapped up in only what we can sell at the end of the autumn from an agricultural production point of view is highly risky given the way climate has changed, given the type of topography we've got and the high sort of um, rainfall, snow, weather conditions we've got, which will dictate how many of those we will actually have at the end of each day. That's a high-risk environment to actually be in. And Scotland isn't really placed for um, cheap, big-volume production. I mean, Scotland's uh, niche going forward will be the high-value end. It will be the, the, the quality products, and there's a branding exercise there as well. But I guess that this... Um, sustainability would fit quite nicely into that, you know, branded Scottish oh. high quality produce. Yeah, very much so. So, uh, turn it on its head. 
you, you look at Scotland, you know, step back from farming itself, look at Scotland's farming systems, and 70% 70, 70 of Scotland's farming system is either upland or of upland character. You know, poor vegetation, poor productivity, a lot of challenges from an agricultural production perspective. But nevertheless, they can still produce a, a small amount of good quality um, 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 agricultural products from that land. But what we do have, and it's, it's a challenge to do that, but nevertheless it can be done. But what we do have in that 70% of Scotland, and elsewhere in Scotland, but particularly in that 70% of Scotland, is a huge number of opportunities, or a huge amount of opportunity, to be able to deliver a wide range of public goods from that land. I'm not suggesting that any one um, um, hill farm or croft would be de delivering many, many, many different public goods themselves. But there's more opportunity for them to, to deliver an agricultural product and one or two other public goods, depending on the scale of the farm. And then collectively, when you step back from that farm or croft and look at the way their landscape it sits in, you then see that those land managers are starting to deliver, collectively, a wider range of these public goods that wider society wants. We've got a huge opportunity in Scotland, given the type of land um, um, that we actually have. And going back to your earlier question, even down in, um, in the low-ground areas, there's still an awful lot of opportunity there for those low-ground farmers to be recognised and rewarded for work that they're actually doing, yes, to improve soil, but also to, to improve and maintain water quality, etc. So the, the WTO doesn't enforce um, environmental standards. It's, it's up to individual countries to decide their environmental standards and is there a risk that that puts us at a competitive disadvantage? It has, it has the potential to put um, British farms at a competitive disadvantage but that depends on what the trade relationship is that's agreed with that um, 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 uh, importing, uh, yeah, exporting country or the country we're receiving those imports from. Turning on its head the difficulty with the WTO regulations as they stand, not reflecting environment or, or, or um, welfare, for example, as David Barnes said yesterday, uh, is that that means that we cannot, we, the UK, cannot seek to restrict the input of, uh, uh, the, the import of any um, 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 agricultural goods from any other countries on the basis of they, they don't conform to our current environmental or uh, welfare, animal welfare norms. WTO will not allow that. Uh, what WTO allows is for the UK and that third country, whoever that third country may be, to enter into a discussion and see if we can reach an agreement that would actually um, suggest uh, or that third country might then agree to either change its um, production practices or at least change the practices that are directed towards the, the goods that are coming into the UK. But we would have to recognise, we have to recognise that from the UK's perspective, they're not going to do that just to please the UK. If they choose to do that at all, they'll want something in return. So they will need to actually ensure... Uh, need to go into those negotiations uh, with eyes wide open, knowing that, uh, that something will be asked for in return. And it's important um, to emphasise as well that that something that may be asked for in return wouldn't necessarily be anything to do with agriculture in the UK. It could be used as a agriculture in the UK and imports into the UK of agricultural products could become a, mar a major bargaining chip with regard to um, um, access to other sectors within UK, you know, financial sector, you know, uh, uh, you know, London Stock Exchange, etc., etc., its ability to actually work and trade on a global scale may be limited by what other countries um, allow it to do, and and agriculture and particularly fisheries could be on the table as a as a as a, as a simply as a bargaining chip uh, and and maybe a bargaining chip that you know those holding um, those chips might be willing to give up in order to get something else i think it's easy for for us in in the uk we've been part of a trade organization for a long time we've been part of the eu and i think it can be difficult for us to get our heads around the fact that yes we will be part of another trade organization but it's very very different you know the, the wto is a very loose sort of arrangement 
um, it's it's not policed in the way that the the EU is, and there are a lot of things in the WTO. It's not just environmental standards and welfare standards, even um, labour rules about how you're allowed to treat people is relatively loose within the WTO and there will be things that countries can do that we in the UK would think were pretty abhorrent but that's that's the WTO's role is not there to, 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 to change that and to bring about a change in the WTO needs what 200 odd two, countries two, to 200 odd countries and men uh, I, I well the, the what's called uh, the general agreement of trade and tariffs you know the fundamental underpinning of um, World Trade Organization. You know that was put together in 1948, if, if I recall rightly, um, and that was only involving a relatively small number of countries, 25 or 30 countries at that point in time. Uh, that, together with the, um, I think it's the Agreement on Agriculture, which was put together in um, the mid 90s or, or or established in the mid 90s, and that did involve 200 odd countries coming to that sort of agreement. But that agreement took. 10, 15 years to actually reach, to actually get to that sort of stage. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking ahead, uh, it's highly unlikely, um, at least in this short to medium term, that there'll be any major changes to WTO type regulations simply because of the the scale of the change and the the discussions that we need to be had to actually um, deliver that. And WTO, like many other um, um, agreements, it only needs you know, um, a small number or even one country to say that I'm not willing to actually support that for for it all to sort of fall apart. So I think what we need to be aware of in the UK, uh, as you were as you were indicating, is it is a brave new world that we're actually entering into. Um, trade um, is, is going to be fundamental to uh, the UK as an island nation, both in terms of exports and in terms of imports. Um, but trade agreements imply negotiation Negotiation also implies compromise and trade-offs, uh, and we have to be um, um, well aware uh, of where agriculture, as a priority from a from a land management perspective, is pretty high in Scotland. Maybe not as high in in, in the rest of the UK, certainly in England, but certainly where agricultural sits as a priority when someone enters into trade negotiations. Um, um, and wider access negotiations about a wide range of other sectors that are important to the UK. Agriculture is going to be well, well, well down the, well down the list of priorities there, um, uh, and protecting agriculture probably is even smaller, lower down that list of priorities. How agriculture or fisheries can be used as a as a as a bargaining chip might be higher up uh, the table. But not necessarily to the to the to the benefit of agriculture or or, or fisheries to use the example I, I just gave. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's quite key that you can't you can't specify the production method when you're deciding mm. who you're going to trade with, and um, that will be pretty key. So you you can't discriminate a country because you don't like their production method on you know environmental grounds or on welfare grounds or on human welfare grounds. Um, so that will be a challenge that the UK has as mm. a small country in the WTO. We perhaps don't have quite the same yeah. weight to put behind some of these yeah. things that, that the EU does yeah. currently. And, and, and I mean, again, um, we're in danger of sort of um, spreading doom and gloom. Uh, and certainly trade negotiations is definitely not my area of expertise. But what we also need to remember is, uh, as, as, as you indicated earlier, Although it's an well, it is an agreement. And people have signatories to it, uh, but it's quite a, a, a loose sort of agreement out there. Um, so there's no actual policing as such. Any action taken against any one WTO country uh, uh, will depend on someone raising a raising a dispute. Um, and so there could be. I'm not. I'm not saying there is, but there could be things that are currently happening within the wider EU in terms of how we are supporting agriculture, for example that other countries might think is not quite uh, conforming to WTO um, um, regulations. But currently they're unlikely to actually enter into a dispute with a large trading bloc like the EU, because you'll always get, if something happened, you may get tit-for-tat type reprisals, justifiable reprisals, uh, or genuine reprisals under WTO. A danger 
and it's only a danger, I'm not suggesting it's going to happen, is when, when we disassociate ourselves from the EU, but at least in this um, 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 transition period and, and, and for some time beyond, we're largely uh, applying EU um, approaches, uh, uh, integrating it into our domestic legislation in the first instance, that we then become a much um, um, smaller fish in a much bigger pond where others may then choose to say, well, actually, let's, let's, we're not going to take on the EU and, and, and test the EU on the, the validity of what they're doing with regard to something. But the UK is doing it. Let's, let's test it there. Let's look, raise a dispute over the UK about how they're supporting product X and see where it gets us. That's a, that's a much more uh, manageable, bite-sized thing to actually do. So there's a danger that we could be used as a, uh, as a testing board on the WTO um, 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 world circuit. Yeah, so, th so there are things which, um, as part of the EU, we are doing which we might think are entirely compatible with the WTO mm. rules, but perhaps we wouldn't have quite the same experience if we, you know, w once we're a, a yeah. country on our own. The same experience or level of confidence. Yeah. The, key, the key thing, the key thing for um, 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 farmers and crofters and other land managers sort of listening to this is, yes, we are entering a period of change. There's a whole host of things that are likely to change um, out there and, and trade agreements uh, are, are, are one of those things. But those are things that individual farmers or crofters can't really influ influence in a major way. And even national farmers, unions and crofting federations, etc., it's very difficult for them to actually influence that. But from the bulk of what we've actually talked about, um, today, uh, there's a whole host of things that the individual farmer and crofter, she or he, can actually influence at the at, at their individual farmer or, or croft level, and certainly would urge them to very much focus on what what's within their own control. What can they do to actually improve the uh, the variety of outcomes arising from their farm, um, um, in order to actually be in a better position to actually benefit that when policy actually changed. Um, forewarned is forearmed, um, as they say. Is, is there a law of diminishing returns in terms of the biodiversity and these benefits? I mean, is this potentially going to penalise those farmers who have already done huge amounts and there's not as much left for them to do, or is that not a thing? Um, that is a very interesting question, uh, and it has been a, well, not has been a danger, has been a fact uh, over the last um, 40 odd years of uh, agricultural policy and certainly over the last sort of 30 odd years of agri-environment policy. Most agri-environment policies to date have required an area of change. You enter it on the basis you'll change something so that it could be easily seen that a change has happened and that the, the, the box can be ticked and the payment can be made. So, it's, so those farmers that already have good quality land that are already delivering from the environment have been constrained, limited about how they could get into agri-environment schemes. The benefit of the pay-by-results, pay-by-outcome approach, that doesn't require someone to move from A to B necessarily. If B is the outcome that's desired and you're already there, the payment is to for the, the, the payment recognises that you've got there and the payment is there to help you actually maintain that. Um, um, habitat or those um, species or whatever the focus is. So that was, is, I see that as one real advantage of a movement towards a, a more outcome-based sort of approach is that those people who are already delivering can be rewarded. Nevertheless, I am more than aware that policy and policies are not always driven necessarily by real logic they're driven by what is simple to introduce, what is simple to manage, what is simple to police. And as we've seen in the past, there always is a danger that something might be developed in a way that those people who have um, already got that on the ground might be disadvantaged. But certainly myself and others were well aware of these lessons that have been learned from the past and we are very vocal about um, um, making that case that we shouldn't just be requiring um, um, a major change at any one farm level in order to elicit support going forward. There are many farmers already out there um, who have got their natural capital is in, is in good health. They've got that stock in the bank. Reward them, recognise them for that and reward them going forward for helping to maintain or enhance that. 
Clearly, another aspect of the payment for outcome approach is if you're not delivering the outcome for whatever reason, if that outcome, that condition of that habitat deteriorates rather than is maintained, the payment will drop. But that is just like anybody doing anything else. If you're being paid to deliver something and you don't deliver it, why should you expect to get paid for it? And with all that in mind, what would be your advice to farmers about what they could start doing now so that they are in the best possible shape if this type of system is implemented? Well, the key thing is to, uh, and I, I appreciate it's, it's not easy to do, I mean, um, uh, farmers across, any farmer across Scotland, you know, it feels like they're on a treadmill just to actually uh, deal with the daily grind of, of managing the farm and, and, and producing the outputs in terms of the agricultural products, etc. I appreciate that. But if possible, take a step back and just try and take a different look at what you've actually got on the farm currently. Um, thinking of some of these, you know, um, soil, wildlife, carbon mitigation potentials, potentials for either you've got trees on your farm or the, what potential might there be to put trees elsewhere on your farm in a way that integrates with the farm and the farming system, not replaces the farm or the farming system. Take a step back and see if you can assess what might be the, the options going forward. What do you already have um, that could be, should be, is likely to be producing, contributing to some of these sort of public good um, um, and elements going forward. What parts of the farm can you actually um, identify that you might be able to um, um, change your management practices on in the future? Once we actually have a clearer idea of what type of um, support mechanisms um, um, are going to be in place to actually um, facilitate that. Unfortunately, this is 2020. We don't have any agri-environment scheme being opened up for this year, at least at, at, at this point in, in, in recording. Um, but nevertheless, there are there are other options out there depending on there can be other options out there depending on where you are. Farmers within um, our two large national parks. There are other uh, uh, um, schemes running within each of those parks that may provide some level of um, um, uh, funding support um, for farmers for actually changing things on the ground. Those farmers who have um, uh, uh, peatland on their farm or farmers, land managers, landowners who have got peatland on their farm, there's a big focus on peatland restoration um, and has been for a number of years, will continue to be going forward. Currently that's just going to um, help pay for the restoration process per se, so it's a one-off capital payment that helps restore the areas of peatland on a, on a, on a particular land area. But Ultimately, I'm convinced that in the future, having restored peatland on your farm, sequestering, storing carbon, capturing and storing carbon, helping to actually hold back water, that will increasingly be something that has to be recognised as a, as, a, as a good and an annual payment, an annual reward will be made to farms um, and, and landowners for actually, for actually doing that. So it's like looking ahead to see what element of the farm have I got where I could start to put in place, I've either got or I can um, identify where I can start to uh, build up a, a stock of something different that's not livestock. And it's worth mentioning at that point that if you are thinking about doing something like that and you would like some help with that, that's one thing that you could use an integrated land management plan for. So the Scottish Government will fund between 80 and 100% of the cost of one-to-one advice for your business and that can encompass a variety of things from um, business advice, financial advice but also advice on how to identify and start thinking about the natural capital assets on your farm. Yeah, very much so. Strongly advise um, any farmer land manager to sort of engage in that process. Potentially post-Brexit the UK will have the ability to increase the amount of amber box support. So this is the support which would be seen as potentially distorting trade and we've reduced the amount of amber box support very substantially since the 90s when it was first brought in and potentially there's a bit of headroom now. You can see why it might be tempting to start using a bit more you know headage based support particularly in some fragile areas um, with either your ecologist hat on or with your sheep farmer hat on what what would be your take on that? Well, as, as, as you've said in the question, you know, um, post-Brexit, the UK uh, will inherit a proportion of that amber box potential. So there's, there's plenty of headroom there if we chose to, to 
develop more production oriented um, or, or, or support levels that have a production element associated with it, then the question would be how much is that trade distorting? In, in most cases it's unlikely to be, but it's, it's safe for the sake of argument it was. It could sit quite easily in that sort of amber box um, side of things uh, without any uh, uh, disruption of World Trade Organisation agreements um, as far as the UK or Scotland are concerned. What do we do post-Brexit that ensures that we actually conform to WTO regulations? But I think we should step back from that and say what type of support is required going forward. And certainly in a country like Scotland, in our more remote, fragile um, areas that make up the dominant part of the country, then as we've already recognised in recent years, some form of what would historically have been seen as direct support is likely to be fundamental in order to maintain um, some form of farming or crofting in those areas. Because uh, I'm constantly saying, I'm constantly writing, that actually um, farmers and crofters um, at the minute and looking ahead, those are the people that are there on the land with the capability to manage that land, not just for farming and crofting in terms of agricultural output, but also in terms of the wide range of outputs that we've been talking through this interview. If you don't have farmers and crofters present on the farms and crofts, that takes away your mechanism, your ability to ask someone, them, to manage things in a different way. And in most of the remote areas of Scotland, once you lose those farms and crofts, it's going to be very difficult to get them back, back in. And although public goods um, um, have come more from the, the environmental and the ecology sphere, then there is no way that uh, environmental NGOs have the capacity to actually replace the 70% of Scotland or 70 plus percent of Scotland that's under some form of some form of farming. We need land managers on farms and crofts or on the, the extent of Scotland. If uh, a support mechanism um, has a much more, uh, it might even just be a social support as much as, a, as an agricultural production support, but even if, if that's the primary reason of the support as a, as, a, as a bottom rung on the ladder to ensure that someone is there who can then be um, encouraged, facilitated, rewarded for actually managing that land in a wider range of ways, then so be it. Uh, at Kirkton Octa Tyre, our, our upland research and demonstration farms, we, we haven't just chosen to do a mix of agricultural research uh, and environmental research just for the sake of it. We see that that is strongly interlinked. There are things that farmers and crofters can do to improve the cost effectiveness of their farming and crofting from an agricultural production point of view. Uh, and but that can go hand in hand with more um, targeted management of the the wider environment on their farms, um, and we believe strongly not only that that's a good thing to do, um, or an important thing to do. We believe strongly that's going to be fundamental for them to be doing that going forward to actually enhance the resilience um, of their farms and crops to ongoing climate change as well as ongoing political change and policy change. Thank you very much, Davey. That was fascinating. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. If you have any questions, you can go to the website www.fast.scot and feel free to phone the helpline if you have any specific questions. Okay. Do you want to ask that question in the road? Um... Yeah, what was the question? Basically, will the lack of environmental standards in the WTO both British farm and at a competitive disadvantage.